From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, a whirlwind of health rules paved the way for in-person schooling. A lot of support to move forward with a mandate community-wide, and a lot of, you know, dissatisfaction and, and frustration from families that, that thought that that may be coming. Also, what to look for in a maddeningly tight car market. There is a lot of demand for the big, expensive, profitable vehicles, not so much for the workaday cars that get us around. Plus, the Little League World Series champs of Taylor North. These guys love practice. These guys love going out there. And the work that they put into it, it really showed. You know, it showed on all the way through districts, all the way through the, the World Series run. Their coach checks in with us on the drive home from Pennsylvania. All that coming up on today's Stateside. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Bear. This hour, we will attempt to make sense of an utterly bonkers automotive sales market. The average price of a used car is $25,000. That's for a car that has an average of 68,000 miles. Where does this leave anyone who's dependent on cars for work right now? That story coming up in a bit, but first, the school year has arrived, ready or not, for most Michigan families. It is a trail mix of feelings colliding for parents, students, and teachers. Sweet, salty, and a little bit nuts. Many of us are sending children off to school buildings where masks are required for everyone. A majority of the most populous counties in the state are requiring indoor masking for all students and staff, regardless of whether or not they're vaccinated. Kalamazoo County was the first in the state to institute a countywide public health order for masks. Jim Rutherford is health officer here in Kalamazoo County, and he joins us now. Jim, welcome to Stateside. Good, good afternoon, April. Thanks for having me. We have heard uh, reactions to masking orders in schools that are mixed, to use a, a mild and polite word. Can you tell us a little bit about how people have been reacting to uh, this guidance in Kalamazoo? So, um, you know, we made the decision and, and went live with it on August 18th. And I was receiving a significant amount of of reach out from my community prior to the 18th. And, you know, it really ran the gamut, but, but most of all, it was very polarizing. We had um, families and parents and, and educators uh, on one end of the spectrum or the other end of the spectrum. Um, you know, a lot of support uh, to move forward with uh, a mandate uh, community-wide um, and a lot of, you know, dissatisfaction and, and frustration from families that, that thought that that may be coming or pending. So um, very emotional topic uh, overall. Um, and then when we, when we put forth the mandate, a lot of the, you know, oftentimes people don't, they don't comment unless they're, they're um, unhappy with the results. So that really ramped up a lot of frustration, particularly in, in a couple of my school districts. Um, whereas, uh, you know, there were town hall meetings, um, there's a, a lot of pushback from the families a lot of threats that, you know, we're not going to do this. We're not going to, we're going to abide by this. So really, it really took a lot of work on, on our behalf, working with school leadership, our school superintendents to be able to get, um, you know, buy-in for that. And, and again, there's just a lot of people that are frustrated with it, but um, I think in the end, it's the right decision. 
There are some school districts across the country and here in Michigan that have had to quarantine kids, dozens, uh, sometimes a hundred, because of exposure. Uh, Heartland Consolidated in Michigan comes to mind. Many of these districts put mask mandates in place after the fact because of COVID spread, after they'd experienced a widespread outbreak. Are you confident that masking is going to be the solve here to keep schools open and kids protected? Well, it's it's not the, the, the complete solution to the situation. And, you know, public health, it can't really afford to be reactive. It, public health, good public health, really needs to be proactive. And for us to, to sit back and wait for something bad to happen is just not good public health. You know, public health uh, really uh, determines what's going on in our respective community. And we know that we've got some of the highest rates uh, in Southwest Michigan and Kalamazoo County. The Delta variant has changed everything in terms of the level of transmission. So, you know, to take a proactive step forward, you know, we, we leaned on what we did last year and what worked last year and masking worked. Uh, the schools that, that went face-to-face last year that were, that were rigid about applying those mitigation strategy and masking being one of the biggest for this population that, that don't have access to the vaccine, the, the K through sixth graders, it works. It worked last year at keeping significant outbreaks um, at a minimum, at keeping kids in school, in, in learning and face-to-face environments. You know, the CDC came out very early on uh, indicating that this school year, face-to-face learning needs to trump everything else. So what do we need to do to make our face-to-face learning as safe and as prolonged as possible? And we know what worked last year. Face mask wearing worked. Hygiene worked. Mitigation strategies, including uh, you know, distancing, cohorting, all of those worked at keeping kids in school safe and learning with face-to-face learning. With the initial strain of COVID, I guess the, the alpha variant, it became increasingly clear that COVID in children was very closely tied with community spread and that it had very little connection with kids being in school settings. Do we know anything yet about how the Delta variant is spreading for kids? Is it primarily those interactions with adults, or do you have concerns about the spread among children? Well, I mean, historically, I think we've we've experienced, very fortunately, that COVID doesn't hit um, kids the way that it hits people over the age of 70, for instance, or people with compromised immunity. But Delta is a relatively new variant, and and COVID changes and COVID adapts to the environment that we allow it to adapt to. And quite frankly, the fact that we only have, you know, 63, 64% of our population vaccinated, and that's great, um, we're not there yet. So we've created, I think, an opportunity worldwide for COVID to, uh, uh, you know, mutate as, as many times as it has. You know, we are encountering in, in Kalamazoo County, I've had over 50 hospitalizations of, of children and adolescent within one of my health systems alone since the beginning of, of 2021. Um, these are kids that are, are very sick. They come into the emergency room, they have to be intubated, they have to be put on ventilation. So, you know, well, to some people, that may not sound like a significant amount of kids, but to me, it sounds pretty significant. And if you were one of those parents, it would be extremely significant. So I think that oftentimes we underscore or understate 
how impactful um, this disease has been on, on our children and our adolescents. Um, I, I just don't want us to forget that. And I don't want us to um, forget that, you know, these kids can transmit the disease. Uh, they can take it home to uh, elderly people, people with compromised immunity. We have a lot of kids in schools that may have compromised immunity as a result of recovering from chemotherapy or other illnesses that they're, that they're dealing with. We have you know, teachers and, and employees within school systems that are vulnerable as well. So really trying to get away from that concept of, of, of just an individual and looking at what's best for the community as a whole. Right. Many health professionals are assuming that Michigan's tangle with Delta is going to increase over the next several weeks that we might be looking at a peak in early to mid-October. Is that what you're uh, sort of thinking about and planning for right now? It's difficult to, um, you know, I tried doing all sorts of predictions on this from the beginning, and (laughs) I've oftentimes been wrong, unfortunately, and it's just difficult to, you know, when we're going to hit the apex, the top of this this, um, curve, and start to see some downward trending. I'm hopeful that we start to see that, you know, sooner than later. Obviously, uh, we also have to be, you know, looking at the potential for the other variants, um, you know, coming into play. Uh, 95 plus percent of the of the of the out or the uh, positive cases that we have now are of the Delta variant. So it's it's certainly very widespread within um, you know the United States. So you know that being the case, I'm hopeful that that that's that's what we encounter. You know, we're hopeful that we start to see more information um, from from our partners at the CDC uh, as it relates to the availability of vaccine for, you know, our our five to 11 year olds, which is what hopefully will be next. Um, You know, we're talking a lot about, you know, booster doses now, and we're just not hearing a lot of, you know, you're hearing just bits and pieces of availability of, you know, some of the studies uh, coming about sometime in September for this population. How do you expect the county is going to handle enforcement of of what's been put into effect now? Well, you know, again, I've been working with our school superintendents now for 22 months on on COVID related issues, and um, you know, I think we'll get compliance from you know buy in and the schools that have you know come to public schools. This is the first time that they've gone into, and that's my largest school system. But this is the first time that they've encountered or gone into face-to-face learning since the beginning. So, you know, you're going on two or a year and a half plus of kids that haven't had that, that face-to-face learning experience. So um, I, I think that the school administrators uh, want to keep school face-to-face. They want this to work. Uh, I know that it's going to be tough, but as we start to see, um, you know, this it, Monday, today, uh, is the first day of school for all of my schools in Kalamazoo County. And, you know, the sky is not falling and, and I'm not getting a lot of, a lot of reach out from, from school leadership indicating that they're not getting compliance. I don't want this to be punitive. I don't want it to be, you know, confrontational. I get it. Um, and, and, and I'm just asking the community as a whole, just to give me a little bit more um, time and energy towards trying to, stave off uh, the, you know, outbreaks and diseases, particularly within our schools, particularly within a population of kids that just haven't had access to a vaccine. And, you know, in that age group, that's about 27,000, you know, people within my community that just don't have access to a vaccine. 
Jim Rutherford is health officer for Kalamazoo County. Jim, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, April. Next up, a group of 12-year-old Michigan boys show what they can do. Yeah, you know, these kids have been working hard all year. They've been doing multiple practices and dedicated to to the game, you know, dedicated to to doing the small things, the T-work and the the tedious stuff that comes comes with uh, training for baseball. Taylor North's Little League team beat rivals from Southern Ohio to take home the title in the Little League World Series over the weekend. We'll talk with their coach in just a moment. Stay with us. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. After many, many disappointing baseball seasons in Michigan, our state can finally lay claim to a World Series championship. This ball driven to center. It's playable. Farkas is there and ends in his glove. And the Taylor North Little Leaguers are World Series champions. Taylor North's team of 12-year-old baseball players won the Little League World Series last night in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and boy, was it fun to watch. Joining us now is Rick Thorning, the manager of the team and also dad to one of the players. Rick, welcome to Stateside. Thank you. Thank you very much. Congratulations. How are you and the kids feeling today? Uh, we're doing good. You know, there's a lot of things in motion right now for us. And it's, uh, you know, obviously with the setting up phone calls and uh, tomorrow our team's going down to um, the Tiger game. We're going to go watch their batting practice and uh, get to meet the Tigers and get um, introduced there, I think, in the second or third inning um, at the Tigers game. So and that's just the first of many things that I'm kind of setting up on my phone for these kids. And uh, it's well deserved. They deserve it. Sure. Uh, Rick, there are very few teams that just show up for a national championship. Can you talk a little bit about what what brought the team and you to this point? Um, Yeah, you know, these kids have been working hard all year. They've been doing multiple practices and dedicated to to the game, you know, dedicated to to doing the small things, the T-work and the the tedious stuff that comes comes with uh, training for baseball, you know, the infield work. And a lot of, you know, there's a lot of kids which is – Fine. They're 12 years. There's a lot of kids that, you know, oh, it's practice. And they're like, ah, we don't want to go to practice. These guys love practice. These guys love going out there. And the work that they put into it, it, it really showed, you know, it showed on the um, all the way through districts, all the way through the, the World Series run um, that these guys worked. And they, they didn't tire out. They didn't tire out. They were ready to go and they were ready for the challenges that uh, the World Series, you know, gave them and, and, and they played well. You had to isolate the team because of COVID. Did that do anything to your style of training and your style of coaching for them? Um, training, no, because, you know, we had the facilities here and we had all the stuff that we could do here. Um, the, the COVID part of it is with the kids was starting to get a little difficult because of, it. you know, we had to be fathers to these kids per se, even though it was only for three or four weeks because they didn't, they didn't have their mom and dad with them. So there were a lot of times where, you know, you had to you know talk to them non-baseball wise, like, hey, you know, stop leaving your underwear there or take a shower or, you know, just the odds and ends of stuff like, you know, and the kids responded uh, very well to us. Your son's on the team, your son, Cameron, he's a pretty dynamic athlete. Uh, Do you and he have any ground rules for, for what happens between you two as family and what happens between you two as coach and player? Yeah. You know, so I've had that situation with my older son too. I, you know, I coached my older boy who's now 16. I coached him since he was five years old and, and the older they get, the smarter they believe they are and they know everything in the world. So, and, and it's no different on the baseball field, but Cameron, Cameron hasn't been to that point. 
Um, and when I talk baseball, uh, he listens, you know, he takes it in. He comes to me for that advice and it's nice to have that, you know, to have that because it's very difficult to coach your child uh, in any sport. How does program building work when you have an ever-changing roster of players who are growing and learning and aging in and out of the program? Yeah, you know, that's always difficult, too. And that was one of my biggest things that I spoke with the kids about during this, especially our last practice and our last game. And I said, you know, this team right here um, will never be assembled again. You might have these 11 kids that might have two or three kids on the team in another year, or you might have six of these kids who are on a team. You might have eight of these kids on a team. But these 11 ball players only that exist on this team, this team will never be together again, ever again on this baseball field or at this practice. And that's always difficult, you know, because we all dedicate our, our lives, our baseball to playing Little League. And we do travel baseball on the side. So you get kids that come and go in and out. And if a kid's not in your boundaries or Little League doesn't approve him to play for you, like he doesn't play for you because he's not allowed to. But it's definitely a revolving door with, with kids in and out and the ages. And like you said, aging out. And that definitely plays a big part in, in trying to keep a team together. Yeah. Just in the final inning, three outs away from the victory, I read that you told the boys to forget everything good and everything bad that had happened so far and to just play the inning in that moment with a clear head. Yes. That's such an yes. interesting point and so challenging, I think, for anybody. Is that what you saw them go out there and do? Oh, yeah, that's, that's what they did. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, you always got to take a step back and, and understand that these kids are 12 years old. And we always talk about not, you know, not carrying a strikeout into the into the field and, and you know, and playing bad in the field or not carrying an error to the plate and having a bad at bat because we really, really discuss, we really, really discuss that. And, uh, you know, these kids are 12 and when they strike out, they feel that they disappointed everybody that's watching or they disappointed everybody in the mm-hmm. stands. And it's hard for them to accept that, you know, so that's always a battle with these kids. So that's why I said, you know, I wanted to get them. I wanted to get every single player on that field in that dugout in that moment of the sixth inning. I wanted them to forget everything that they did. That was good. Forget everything that they did. That was bad. Just focus on the sixth inning and wrap this thing up, and and that's what they did. Rick Thorning manages Taylor North's World Series winning Little League team. Rick, thank you so much for talking to us on the road. Hey, thank you for having me on. We appreciate it. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Imagine a state in desperate need of cash for infrastructure and a young governor looking to bolster an exhausted population with popular projects. Welcome to Michigan. Circa 1837. It is so instructive listening to history's rhymes. As Congress continues to debate the federal infrastructure bill today, we decided it was time to look back into a piece of Michigan history for the story of how a trunk full of cash for roads, bridges, and more led to the political demise of Michigan's popular first governor. Joining us now from the Michigan History Center is state archivist Mark Harvey. Mark, welcome back to Stateside. Good to be back. Thank you. So, Set the stage for us. Michigan became a state in 1837, and a very, very young Stevens T. Mason was elected governor. Exactly how young was he? Well, he was first elected governor in 1835, but we weren't recognized as a state, so he's 23 then. How does somebody that young uh, rise to, I mean, I understand it was kind of a wild time in, in politics without a lot of guardrails, but how did he come to such prominence? 
He came from a Virginia family. Um, you might recognize the name George Mason. So he was a direct descendant of George Mason, who was at the Constitutional Convention, and was just one of those political blue bloods. He had uncles that were senators and Supreme Court, state Supreme Court justices. So he had a really strong political background, uh, strong heritage, and from the East Coast. And his dad wanted to make a name for himself. I think he was sort of under the shadow of all all these other Masons. And he headed west, but he wasn't quite as savvy as the other Masons. And at one point, President Jackson appointed him secretary of the Michigan Territory, uh, for better or for worse. And it was Stevens T. at age 19 who was really keeping his dad from making horrible errors and embarrassing the Democrats who were under continual attack from the Whigs. They were always looking for ways to to snipe them. And it was Stevens T. that kept his dad from making fatal errors, and Lewis Cass noticed it. He was going to be the Secretary of War for Jackson, and he was the star of the Jackson uh, administration in, in the Michigan Territory. So that's yeah. how he rose. And, and at one point, President Jackson sent his dad on a mission. I think maybe he was getting too worried about his dad making a mistake and installed Stevens T. as the acting secretary, which is really a governor at that point at age 19. I can only imagine what the conversa- the dinner table conversations must have been like within the Mason family of, the, you know, Mason the elder <laughs> making these gaffes and Stevens T., you know, just trying to keep a hand on the tiller there. What, what were the kinds of challenges that were facing uh, Michigan as a territory-turned-state and its first governor in the late 1830s. What, what, was, what was a hot topic back then? There was just a lot going on in, in the territory in the 1830s, going back to um, you're on the heels of the Black Hawk War, so there's always this uh, perceived external threat issue. There probably weren't very good tribal relations at that point. The Treaty of Washington had been negotiated in 1836, were on the heels of the Toledo War, which was, at the time, a real embarrassment for Michigan um, because they didn't get what they wanted. And that actually cost Mason his prized position in the Jackson administration because it looked like he was going against the United States at that point. So so you have all that earlier in the 18, in 1833, there was a race riot in Detroit. So there's just a lot going on. And we have to remember that After the Toledo War, again, it wasn't until 1841 that we realized that we had gotten the better of the deal with all of the iron ore and copper deposits in the UP that were discovered by Douglas Houghton. So it's a raw time, and we're a new state, but, man, there's a lot to do. Yeah. Well, how did the state plan to raise money for infrastructure spending that that was needed at that point? They would raise money through the sale of public bonds. Um, the problem was the amount. The state had no money, and if you add in all the interest and everything that went along with that sale, it would come out to a little over 12% of the state's equalized value, which if you don't have any cash and then you go into that 12%, it's probably not a great idea. Well, and anybody who's seen or heard the soundtrack of Hamilton can tell you that this this could be a very controversial topic in the first couple hundred years of yeah. the country, common though it was. Was it solely Governor Mason's responsibility to get this cash together? Yeah, it was, and I think this is one of those political setups, even though can't really prove it, but the 
uh, Whig-dominated legislature said it was his sole duty to go raise this, even though he protested um, privately and publicly in his address to the legislature, essentially begged them to set up an advisory committee for him because it was unethical to put all of this responsibility and oversight in one person's purview, and they denied it. Mm -hmm. And so being, I don't know if it was hubris or just he wanted to fulfill his duties, he gave it a shot. So how did he do it? It's it's sort of astonishing to think about a governor, uh, even at that early stage of Michigan statehood, going around asking for loans. <laughs> Is that pretty much how he did it? Yeah, he headed east, and his first stop was the state of New York because, you know, at this time, everyone's looking at the success of the Erie Canal, and he had East Coast connections, so he went out there and met up with a guy named John Delafield in the Phoenix Bank, and John promised to help him raise the money through selling the bonds either to financiers in London or on the East Coast. So he thought he had had a pretty good first foray into something that he's never done before, right? He, here's a political blue blood, but now he's going around with this, his hat in hand asking for favors and for money. And things just got worse for him because he got back to Michigan thinking he had a good start. And the financial panic of 1837 set in. And it just started taking down banks left and right. And over the course of the year, I think it was in June when many banks stopped issuing paper money. They just went right back on the gold standard because of the panic. The legislature said, well, we're just going to go full steam ahead on this internal improvement plan. And Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> what, what options What options did Stevens T. Mason have at that point? Well, Was the money he'd raised even still available? So at that point, he had raised... I think all in all, um, he had gotten a pledge for about $500,000 from a Detroit ship owner, and he had some pledges from the Phoenix Bank, but, but things just, the bottom sort of fell out. The, the ship owner said, I'm actually only going to be able to give you 200000 and John Delafield's, I think the only advances they got were about $150,000. And understand, all along, they had been... They had been trying to build canals. The Clinton-Kalamazoo Canal was, was underway. So they were out, had shovels in the ground, paying people, and didn't have the money to do it. So they just kept, instead of digging the canal, they were digging a hole for them for themselves financially. It's kind of funny to think about this, that, that money had to be physically transferred at that time. There was no electronic transfer and I understand this is where things really started going south. Can you explain how Mason, how Stevens Mason planned to bring the money back to Michigan? It's like a bad movie because the original rate set by the law was 5.5% for the public bonds. And they weren't supposed to go below par, which was, which means, you know, the face value of, of the bond. And at the end, without any banks or, or overseas banks picking up these bonds... Stevens T. Mason finally had to connect with a guy named Ed, Edward Biddle, who was, Biddle ran the Morris Canal and Banking Company. And I don't know, he sort of seems like the the seedy East Coast business guy where he told Stevens T. he'd help him out, but now the rate was 
6%, and he was going to take a 2.5% commission. So you, know, you don't have to be a financier to realize that he's now upside down, even if he gets this stuff funded. So he goes ahead and makes the deal, and and Bettle gives him an advance of $10,397 in cash. <laughs> and they count it out, and they mark the bills, and they wrap them up, and they put them in a trunk. So yeah. how did what happened when he got back to Michigan? Yeah, so he tra- so he traveled back to Michigan, but before he left New York, he had to um, go out on a, an appointment, and he left the trunk in the care of his travel colleague Theodore Romaine, who was a fellow attorney. Turns out that Stephen C was actually going to see about a, a woman. He had been courting Julia Phelps and was completely smitten with her and was trying to get her to, to marry him. So he left this trunk in the charge of Romaine for the evening, came back, and then they set off down the Erie Canal and then on a ship, and they get back to Detroit, and they open it up, and surprise, there's about $4,500 missing. Uh, yeah. Does history tell us who took it? We don't know. So it actually was returned back to Biddle's company Short $50, but um, Stevens T had no explanation. The only time the trunk was out of his care was when it was with Romaine. He swore up and down. He didn't open the trunk. And so that's just one of those mysteries. Uh, Governor Mason actually did cover the $50 out of his own pocket. So in the end, no actual money was missing, which is just completely bizarre. But you can imagine the political fodder that that created for Governor Mason. It, it just, it ruined him. Did he ever recover from it politically? No. Nope. He didn't even bother running for re-election. In his 1839 address, and he, um, his annual address, he started off with, this is the last time I will address this body. So he knew it was over. Uh, silver lining, he married Julia Phelps. Well, at least something worked out for him. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, two years later, he contracted pneumonia and passed away <sighs> at 31. So he's, he's sort of this amazing and tragic figure in the state's history. Mark, thank you so much for sharing this story. It's kind of hard to imagine any of this happening today, but suffice to say, infrastructure is still the stuff of political intrigue anytime. Yes. Mark Harvey is Michigan State Archivist at the Michigan History Center. The car market is insane right now, especially for those looking to buy a used car. Next up, we check for signs of revival in vehicle inventory, and we'll also speak with someone trying to replace their beloved and very necessary vehicle that was damaged by flooding. Stay with us. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. It's not so easy to get around in Michigan without a car. Even if your area does have bus service, many people don't feel safe spending even a few minutes inside a closed space with folks who may or may not be masked or socially distanced. For our guest, Curtis Renee, traveling from the deep east side of Detroit to the west side for work does not leave a lot of options. They need their car for work. Curtis's beloved Honda Element was totaled back in June when torrential rains first flooded there and so many other Detroit neighborhoods. Curtis's friends graciously created a crowdfunding campaign to raise money for another car, but finding it? There's a challenge. Curtis Renee, welcome to Stateside. 
Hi. How are you doing since the flood happened in June? This just blew up so many people's worlds. I feel like it's been a lot to navigate um, and just like figuring out things with my car. It's just, it's just been a lot. I've never had to navigate my car sitting in like four feet of water before. <laughs> what exactly happened to your car? I mean, is getting submerged like that, is that a total loss? Yes, it was a total loss. That's what the insurance company decided. I mean, sometimes a car is just a car, but sometimes they mean a little bit more than that. This was one you had some feelings for? Yeah, I love my car. I actually, when I bought this car, I had been looking for a car for about two years. I really actually hate driving. But um, when I decided to move closer to my parents who live on the deep east side, I was like, okay, I really have to get a car. Prior to that moment, my major motor transportation was bicycling and bus and public transportation. Um, and I looked for a car for about two years and I really love the Honda Element. It's like a super durable car and it has a name. My car's name was Scarab because of the green color that it was. <laughs> so I loved, I really did love my car. And I feel like during this whole period of like navigating things with my car, I've said it to my insurance people a lot and to all of my friends, like, I love my car. So it's been really hard to know that it's not coming back to me. Yeah. I heard that that you're trying to, you're going to try to buy the exact same thing. What has it been like being out on the market for a very specific, very specific vehicle right now? Um, I think it's really, it's been really hard, mostly like navigating things with my insurance company because the amounts that they were using actually when they decided on a total out amount were for prices prior to the pandemic and everything since the pandemic has like pretty much skyrocketed and it was an all wheel drive vehicle. So that is also just like additional, like additional costs um, when thinking about purchasing a vehicle. Are there many Honda elements out there in circulation that you're seeing? So I've been able to find like a handful of elements None of them are <laughs> near me. <laughs> they all are like Ohio, Indiana, and further. Oh. Um, so like New York and like, and I found some other ones like in the South. Um, I have really been trying to find elements that are being sold through dealerships, which is a lot harder. Um, and I'm just looking for a dealership because there are like, certain like checks that they have to do for a car to ensure like a certain amount of safety. Curtis, can I ask what you're doing uh, at the moment just to sort of get yourself through this period until you can, until you can buy what you need? Um, I'm actually, I'm in a rental right now. So there was a period of time that my insurance company was covering my rental. And once they totaled the car, they said they could no longer cover my rental costs. Oh. Um, but because I had been in, I was in disagreement with the amount that they were offering me, like it kind of held things over a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I've been in a rental, which is actually still cheaper than getting a lift. 
Yeah. You know, you mentioned that the, the Honda elements that you're seeing out there definitely cost more than your insurance is willing to pay out. Can you give us a sense of how much more? I mean, is what are, what are prices looking like? So the cheapest I've seen for a Hala element, element is about $4,000. But typically, that is a, like a vehicle that is like from a private owner. And a lot of times when I've been asking questions about the vehicle, I haven't been like super happy with like what they've been able to tell me. Like they're not the only owner of this car. Like there have been previous owners. And then the highest I've seen is probably like, 12,000. And that's like from a dealership. Jeez. What was the, do you mind saying how much the insurance company was willing to, like what they considered the value of the car to be? Um, they were willing to give me 4,500. If you had anything to share about just how tight the car market is right now, what would it be? I think just like having, if you have the space to really take your time and ask questions, if there are any people that you know in your life that have like done any like work in dealerships or things like that, I think, you know, just kind of shaking your family tree to find out what people know around you to make the process as easy as possible. Um, I know like also like everyone pretty much on my block, everyone's car was in lots and lots of water. And so I've also just been like talking to my neighbors a lot, like, oh, have you heard anything? How's your car doing? Um, like how's your search going? And we've been offering one another as many resources like as we can um in this moment. And I I wish that when we're talking about this flood in Detroit, we're not talking about like a natural disaster. Um, The flood in Detroit was because of like malfunction of city, um, like the sewer system. And with something like this, you would hope that the city would be ready to support Detroiters. Like I've lived in Detroit my whole life. And I love, I love the city of Detroit. I like pay my taxes, like all these things. I'm an activist. And you would hope that the city would be ready to support people that have been here and supported the city through like really rough times. And instead of that, um, like it's just been a really hard ordeal for like folks like myself that are trying to navigate buying new cars and also like figure out um, replacing appliances in their basement. Um, so this is, I think what's made it a lot easier is like community and family and talking with people to pull together as many resources as I can while I'm also like still having to go to work and things like that. Detroit or Curtis Renee. Curtis, thank you so much for talking to us about this. We really wish you all the best for this and hoping that Scarab Jr.'s out there somewhere. Thank you. <laughs> If by chance you know of a Honda Element that might be available, reach out. We can get you in touch. Is there any end in sight to this? What's a buyer to do with so little vehicle inventory and so many people needing something to get around? Sonari Glinton is a former Michigander and recovering automotive beat reporter. He now hosts the podcast, Now What's Next? Hey, Sonari. Welcome back. It's good to be with you. How did you first start to realize that something had gone seriously sideways in the car market? 
Well, one of the funny things is I, uh, the number of people who have come to me for car help has just increased. I'll uh, throw Ari Shapiro under the bus, who is uh, visiting Michigan this week to do stories. And a few months ago, he was like, I, I want to buy a car. And I was like, I've known you for like almost 20 years. And dude has always been riding a bicycle. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Why, now, why and, now of all times did he take it into his head he needed to do this? It's partially the pandemic, you know? You get pandemic animals, you change your life, you realize, oh, I might not need to get out of Dodge. So that was one of the people that was like the canary in the coal mine. I was like, oh, that's a thing. And so I kept noticing friends coming to me like, oh, should I buy a car? People who never bought cars. And I was like, oh, there, there must be something here. And there is because demand is up and inventory, if you just go month to month from August to August, we're down as much as 71% of inventory. That yeah. is a tremendous you know, drag on all things automotive. I've even seen some used cars going for prices higher than, than they would have been if they were new right now. What do you think is the most, the most inflated thing that you've seen this year? Well, the crazy thing is to me that according to Cox Automotive, the average price of a used car is $25,000. That's for a car that has an average of 68,000 miles. Now, that is nuts when you think that the average price of a new car is hovering near or above 35,000. I went to a car dealership and it was with a friend looking for a Mazda 3, which is supposed to be a, you know, a compact car, and they were literally the only ones that they had available were about $35,000. Like, whoa! That tells you that there's something deeply wrong or problematic with the supply chain, and that's what it's about. It's about the supply of parts, which in this case are chips, and the analysts think that this problem is going to last well into 2022. Oh, I mean, the, the chip shortage that kicked off when part of the developed world started working from home and buying up electronic devices like that, I mean, I, I just, I can't say. Certainly, certainly certain American automakers didn't foresee the effect that this was going to have, but, oh, that supply chain is just killing us. Yeah, I mean, the chip maker, Kyoto, um, and they make chips for Toyota, Ford, Honda, They've had a severe shortage of all the materials, the raw materials that go into things. I mean, just to give you an anecdote about the supply chain, last night I went out for dinner and they were like, we won't have any more baked potatoes for the season. What? <laughs> because there's even a shortage of baked potatoes. I swear, there's a shortage of potatoes. So it just shows that raw ingredients are valuable and getting them around has become more problematic during the pandemic. You know, it feels like there are one or two kinds of cars out there that you can get your hands on if you're if you truly need one, as as people do. I I was rolling past uh, a dealership that sells Buicks the other day. It looked like I mean they could have been used. I wasn't I didn't stop to find out, but it feels like there's quite a lot of those around. It's funny to me that Buick is a very different car, but it still has not sort of caught up in people's imagination. I, th I think of Buick as feeling like an old school German car in the way they drive because of some of the design influences. You know, there's a big push for electric vehicles. So 
people are really slow to adopt electric vehicles and uh, they're only about 2.2% of new car sales. But one of the things I think is interesting is the demand really right now is for uh, trucks and SUVs. That's, you know, despite the environmental challenges, we still love our trucks and SUVs and we want them more than we don't. And there are a lot of the smaller cars and other vehicles that are still out there, right? If you're looking for, you know, an Audi Q7 or an F-150 or those things, you might have a problem. So there is a lot of demand for the big, expensive, profitable vehicles, not so much for, you know, the workaday cars that get us around. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this topic has been with us for most of the year, if not all of it. And I, I wonder if people are starting to develop mentality that if a car is available <laughs> right now, it's probably overpriced or not good. Is that necessarily the case? One of the things that when we talk about, you know, Toyota, you know, you know, dropping production by 40 percent or overall inventory being down uh, as much as 70 percent, one of the things that is up is demand for vehicles. Right. So the, the people still want these cars and they seem like they're willing to wait for them. What's interesting is that I look around while, you know, the government is putting money you know, looks that is going to be putting money into public transportation and things like that. Well, people aren't ready for that yet, right? Um, I get on the bus and the buses are still empty, right? It's uh, This is a real problem. I mean, there's so many problems in the auto industry, right? The adoption of electric vehicles, you know, that's a problem. The, sh- uh, the chip shortage is a problem. Outsized demand is the problem. The inability to produce quite as many vehicles as before. So there are all of these sort of circling forces. And I think the group that gets hurt the most is the consumer. If you're looking for an inexpensive car, those are very few and hard to find. No, especially if you if you absolutely have to have one to get where you're going or to use in your work. Uh, I just, I mean, this is, this seems to be where the squeeze is happening. But Sonari, I mean, I feel like you're sort of you're sort of one of the aces of this. You're an LA man, and you have certainly had periods in your life when you were getting around uh, carless, or at least at reduced car, <laughs> reduced car capacity. All these people who are coming to you asking for help, what do you tell them? Um, wait. Uh, for instance, leasing. There's there's not a lot of lease cash. There's not a lot of incentives out there. So lease cash would be the thing that would make a lease more attractive incentives that they give the dealers. When they go on TV and they say, you know, go down to your local Honda dealership for and they give you this beautiful price for a lease or a car. Know that they're just talking about the base model car. And the one thing that they don't have are base model cars. You can get the highest high end of whatever vehicle. You know, that's a little bit of the problem there. If you think that the car that, you know, you're wanting like, oh, I'm going to go get a Honda Civic. No, you ain't. Not the base model one. You're going to get the, you can might be able to get the tricked out one, right? But the base model car, the one that the entry level vehicles, those don't seem to be available. And I don't even think in many cases, the automakers are even making them. 
There are so many articles popping up about how used car prices are finally cooling off. I just wonder if it's like that thing with unemployment statistics is because car buyers are actually leaving the market. They've completely given up hope of finding anything in their price range. Yeah, I mean, if you're, I mean, like I said, the the average price of a used car is stunning to me. That is nearly $26,000. That's for a vehicle that nearly has 70,000 miles on it. So if you just got a restaurant job in Troy and you need to drive from somewhere in Detroit, good luck with that, right? I mean, that is, that is hard on folks who are entering the job market, who are, you know, who are re-entering the job market or taking their kids around. I mean, that's a real problem. And if you don't feel comfortable, say, getting on a bus or getting on the train, you know, that also has a, has a problem. Now, I would say that you know, the overwhelming majority of us drive by ourselves to work, like over 85% of us drive by ourselves to work, you know, and I think that one of the things I suggest to people is, hey, carpool, look out there. There's also some apps and things that allow for that, but that is not, that is, that's not even a Band-Aid for the huge problem that we're gonna see as, as there's a worker shortage and more people go back to work. Sonari, thank you for giving us a little bit of a briefing on this, and here's hoping things get a little bit looser soon. Yes, please drive safely. Don't text and drive. And that's Stateside for today. I'm April Bear. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.